Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you have made us your children. We thank you that Jesus, though he was the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. That he took the form of a servant, that he was made in human likeness and found in form as a man, and he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, you have exalted him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we praise you that this is true. We praise you that through this finished, glorious work of Christ, that we have a new life. We can have a new life. Lord, pray that you would help us to walk with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Through all your activities this week, I want you to think about whatever it is you've done, whether it's driving, texting, Zoom calls, watching the grass grow. I don't know how you're spending your time. But whatever it is you've done, I want you to think over all this week how your week would be different if batteries were never invented. Think about that. If batteries were never invented, or if the innovation of a rechargeable battery never came along, how different your regular life would be. We wouldn't have cell phones anymore. We wouldn't have laptops anymore. We wouldn't have cars because of the batteries that run them. Just how much that invention that we just take for granted has changed our lives and it, uh, it seems that every now and then something's invented or something happens that makes such a big difference that the uh, hyperbole is used that, well, this changes everything. And of all the times that I, hyperbole is used, sometimes it's true. And sometimes it's true about inventions like a battery uh, or the invention of a, a Walkman or a USB port. And, and sometimes an event has that level of change on us. You think about uh, graduation uh, or marriage and parenting and, and how different your life was before kids versus having kids. For me, one of the big life-altering events was 9-11, and now we have the, the C word. No, going. don't say it. COVID-19. And uh, these events, they change us. But of all the inventions or events that have changed everything, nothing compares to the scope and magnitude of the change that the cross accomplished. I mean, we think about this. In the cross of Christ, a new covenant was established. And you think of all that went into having the covenant established under Moses and the law and and bringing the people out of of Israel and the, the covenant that God made with them as a nation, all that went into that. And Jesus made a new covenant on the cross. It's salvation, not just for a nation of people, but for all the nations of people. That sins are not just covered, but completely forgiven. And that God's justice and grace is extended. And and then we think about the difference the cross makes in our lives. I think of uh, Paul in Romans 12. He says, therefore, 
in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. And he's, he's basing this in part, you know, he has all his teaching in Romans, but he's really going back to the cross of Christ, the gospel. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies in view of all that God has done for you, all the forgiveness of sins, all the, that God has he's adopted you into his family. In view of all of this, completely give yourself up for him. And Paul here in Philippians, he makes a similar claim. See, Philippians, if you want to think of the structure of Philippians, you can view it like a hill. And Philippians 1 starts going up the hill. And then Philippians 2, when we get to the, the song of Christ's incarnation and death on the cross, that is the peak of the hill. And then everything else comes down from the hill. So everything in Philippians from the first verse and the last verse is either going towards or coming away from that confession of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and how Jesus laid his life down. And here we've just risen over the peak of that, that Christ, at the name of Christ, every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Now in Scripture, whenever we have a therefore, we ask, what is the therefore? Therefore, what is this telling us? And for here it's telling us that the finished glorious work of Christ means something for our lives. And it's that the finished glorious work of Christ changes everything. And in our walk in life with the Lord, we should continually learn and grow. Now, as with all of Paul's letters, all of the, the, the New Testament, all of the Old Testament, as we apply Scripture to ourselves, especially in Paul's letters, we need to remember these were written to churches. And so there is a corporate implication for the body of believers, and there is a personal implication for the reader of the Word. And both are true, and, and both hold value, and we need to look at both. That's what we're here as a church to do, to study God's Word and have it change us. So corporately as a church, as we look at this first verse, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul gives this imperative instruction to work out our salvation. And what does that mean for us corporately? What does that mean for us individually? Well, corporately, I think, I think and I believe firmly that this is a call for us to be serious about discipleship. And I'm, I'm not just talking about simply consuming the same form of media, we follow the same blog, listen to the same podcast, read the same book. I'm talking about discipleship that goes a lot more than, well, what did the author say that spoke to you? In discipleship, we share life with one another. We're relational with one another. We are rubbing off on one another so that the Christ in me rubs off on the Christ in you and we change each other for Christ. That's what I mean by discipleship. And discipleship is best done in relationships. It needs relationships. And it needs to be, and this is where Westchester is so we have such a strength for discipleship. It needs to be intergenerational. 
that we be learning Christ from each other, that we be learning from each other's experiences, helping each other grow, and experiencing the blessing that God has for us as we do so. So that's a a corporate uh, implication, application of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Individually, it's a call to take as much personal responsibility as we can in our uh, in our own sanctification and in our salvation and knowing what it means that we're saved so that we can see as we go along in our lives our own growth and progress as a child of God. Now, as we study this instruction to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, I remember being in high school and uh, memorizing this passage and thinking, what in the world does this mean? Well, one of the things I do whenever I'm having trouble figuring out what it means is I look at first, what is it not? So working out our salvation with fear and trembling is not earning our salvation. It's not coming to the point where it's not working it out to figure out how I can get saved, how I can sneak my way into the kingdom of God. It, you know, Paul in Philippians 3, where we'll be go, getting back into at the end of the summer, Paul makes it very clear we can't earn our salvation. He goes, look, if anyone could had reason to boast, it's me. Look at all the great stuff I've done. But all of that is rubbish, complete garbage, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Working our salvation with fear and trembling is also not keeping our salvation while being afraid that we're going to lose it. It's not a matter, the fear and trembling isn't, oh no, if I don't get this figured out, I'm going to lose my salvation. If I do the wrong thing at the wrong time, it's donezo. You know, none of that. You know, we, we think of John 10 where Jesus said, I hold my sheep in my hand and no one can take them out of my hand. We think of Romans 8 where, where Paul gives this like exhaustive list, short but exhaustive. It goes from one extreme to the other, past, present, uh, height, depth, uh, anything in all creation, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. Once you are in God's family, you're in. And so what does it mean that we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling? Well, here's some things that we see that it is. Well, we see that it's tied to our obedience, that our obedience to God matters. Now, we are not saved by works, but once we are saved, our works matter a lot to show God our submission to Him, His Lordship over us, and to show others the change that's happening, and most importantly, to bring God glory. It's also learning and relearning the extent of Christ's lordship in our lives. And, and for this, this is just another need for us to have relational discipleship in our, in our church happening and to, for us to have inter, intergenerational discipleship happening within our church. I hope, if you haven't already, that you would consider hosting one of our uh, small groups for the summer, for the first half of the summer that we're doing, and to bring those groups into your home, or at least to sign up to be in one of those groups if you don't feel up to hosting one. But if you do feel up to hosting one, reach out to Pastor Austin. He's still looking for people to do that. Uh, Working our salvation with fear and trembling is also owning our, and I can't emphasize this enough, owning our small part in salvation and sanctification. We're going to talk a bit about our part, but we need to keep in perspective that our part, no matter how daunting it may be for us on a given Thursday, our part of salvation and sanctification in the scope of what happens is incredibly small. Uh, but especially as we, as we can work out our salvation, it's a process of learning what it means to be saved. That I'm continually learning what it means that God saved me 
I'm continually learning what it means to walk with Him. What it means that Jesus is the absolute Lord of my life. And for us to just take a moment, I just want to do a brief exercise in working out our salvation together. And the first step in that is for us to know God. And and so let's remind ourselves of God. When I think of God's uh, attributes, the first one that comes to mind is holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's the only attribute of God repeated three times in succession of all of Scripture. I, I believe that's really important. We also should know that God is unchangeable. He does not change like the shifting shadows. So who God was when He said, let there be light, is who God is today, is who God will be a million years into eternity. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So He's unchangeable. So as our culture continues to say, oh, well, this thing that in the past was thought of taboo is actually fine, we should say, what does God's Word say about it? And when we do that, we'll find that our world condones behavior that is not okay and that our world commits injustices that are not okay And we need to speak out about that and say sin is sin, injustice is injustice, and God is God. He is holy. And then a lot of times when we we have groups of people and we go through uh, who is God, what are his, his character and nature, what are his attributes, it always comes around to the omnis, that he's omniscient. He is all knowing. There's not a thing God doesn't know. He's omnipresent. He is present in every place and he's omnipotent. He is all powerful. Hebrews reminds us of an uncomfortable thing and that is that God is a consuming fire. He does have wrath. But we also know that God is love. And it's, it's sometimes hard to think, how can God be a consuming fire, have wrath, have this level of unapproachable holiness, and be loving? An Old Testament uh, story that I think demonstrates all of this well is Mount Sinai. The Israelites have come out of Egypt. God has rescued them from 400 years of slavery, delivered them from the Egyptians, by surprising the Egyptians with a really big swimming party they didn't expect uh, in the Red Sea. And then he brings them to the mountain where he met with Moses. And he's going to meet with the people. And he basically lights the mountain on fire from heaven. And they are told, no one and no thing can touch this mountain or it will die. If a person touches this mountain, they'll die. If a goat touches this mountain, they'll die. Don't touch the mountain. And that's because God is so holy, that mountain took on His holiness. That that mountain was a display of God's holiness, and His holiness in that form was just like His holiness in heaven, incorruptible, and any sin would have to be extinguished. Which meant people who are are sinful, both uh, willfully and naturally sinful, could not come to it. He called Moses up into it, and his mercy allowed Moses, but he could not come. So we have his holiness, his consuming fire, and he, and he warned them. He loved them. He brought them out of Egypt. He loved them so much, he saved them from slavery, and he warned them, you can't come to my holiness as you are. And then he gave them law from that mountain, saying, do these things, and you can walk with me. So we have in Mount Sinai, God's holiness, God's love that he redeemed the people, brought them there. 
and that God's uh, covenantal relationship desire in giving them law to follow Him with. That is who God is. It's who God was when He created. It's who God was when He rescued Israel. It's who God was when they got to the land of Israel and took the land that God had promised them. It's who God was when Jesus was crucified on the cross. And it's who God is now and who He will always will be. And then we need to look at us. So in, in looking at our salvation, we look at God. Now we need to know us. I, you, everyone, every human being is created in the likeness of God. We bear that mark of dignity that is unique to all other creation. Mount Everest wasn't created in the image of God. A bald eagle wasn't created in the image of God. Whatever thing in creation and nature you think is the most beautiful was not made in the image of God, you have a one-up on whatever that thing is. Our grandpappy, Adam, sinned. We have inherited from him, of all the traits that we could get from him, one of them is a sin nature. That when we are born, we have sin. Adam had the ability to not sin. We do not have the ability to not sin. It is unavoidable. It is inevitable that we will sin. Now, being made in God's likeness and sinning, we need to be clear that is spiritual treason at the highest level. God, I have your likeness. I reflect your likeness to all creation. And with that likeness, I sin. Ephesians 2, 1, and 3 goes through this list of who we were before Christ. And if, if you're not in Christ, if you don't have that relationship with God through Christ, it's who you are, that you're dead in your trespasses, that you're a child of wrath, that you follow the prince of the power of the air, that you are one of the sons of disobedience. This is who we are. This is what we bring to the table of salvation. So how do we reconcile our sin with God's holiness? We don't. We can't. There's no way for us to do that. God does all the reconciling. So we know God in His unapproachable holiness. We know us in our unbelievable sinfulness. And then God reconciles us and we should be amazed. Know God, know yourself, be amazed. Romans 5.8, that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, by his infinite power and grace, made something happen that shouldn't be possible. Me, holy. My sins that were red like scarlet are white as freshly fallen snow. Your salvation is a miracle. Think back to Sinai. That God who, who covered that mountain with his holiness so even a goat would die if it touched it, that God has called you from being a son of disobedience to being a child of God, from being a child of wrath to being a co-heir with Christ. Your salvation is a miracle. My salvation is a miracle. And we who are saved need to treat our salvation with the reverence that it deserves. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And our fear is a healthy, awe, awe, uh, Filled fear of God. It's not, uh, it's not a panicked fear, but a holy, reverent 
fear and trembling of God, that that God saved me. Sometimes in Christian circles, you, you get people talking and they talk about their life verses. And they're always like, oh, my life verse is Jeremiah 29, 11. My life verse is Philippians 4, 13. And, they, it, it, and when you're around a crowd of people, you think, oh, everyone just picks their life verse off of, off of posters. Um, but all of us, whether we're willing to admit it or not, have the same uh, life verse, so to speak, a verse that's true about our whole lives. And, and we're not proud of it, but here's the life verse that we ha- all have. It's Romans 7, starting in verse 19. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I, uh, what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so we have this wrestle of I'm saved, God is holy. I still feel a lot of days of the week pretty unholy. And so sometimes that brings us to a panicky fear and trembling instead of having the holy reverent fear and trembling of being amazed that God would save us at all. It's a fear and trembling of maybe he really didn't or a fear and trembling of maybe he'll change his mind. And the reason we need to avoid the panic fear and trembling goes back to what I said earlier, that working out our salvation is owning up to our very small part in our salvation and sanctification. We strive for obedience. We discipline ourselves to think and act according to what God desires. We fast. We read Scripture. We memorize Scripture. We pray. We avoid certain forms of media. But it is God who saves. It is God who makes us holy. It is God who works in us for His Good pleasure. So as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we need to also rely on His divine action. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We need to remember that we are not on our own. You're not on your own. You do not have to do salvation alone. And I'm not even talking about the rest of our congregation or other Christian friends you have who go to other churches. You are not alone. Even if you are alone in your house, you are not alone. The helper that Jesus sent, the Holy Spirit of God, is in you. He's convicting you of sin. He's leading you into truth. He's reminding you that Christ is coming back. He's gifting you for ministry for the sake of the Lord. You are not alone in your sanctification. And we need to remember that it is the Holy Spirit that does this. And we make a really poor substitute for the Holy Spirit. Especially when we try to be the Holy Spirit for another person. If you try to be the Holy Spirit for your husband or wife or kids, it's not going to work. You point out truth, you let the Holy Spirit do the work. The Holy Spirit is the only one qualified to do that. The main way that we rely on God's work, how we follow the Holy Spirit, is through humble submission to the Lord. You know, two weeks ago, in the beginning of Philippians 2, we talked about humble submission to one another. Then last week, we talked about Jesus' humble submission to God. And today, it is really our humble submission to God. We need to humbly submit to God. And there are so many times as we are working out our salvation 
as we were reading scripture, digging in, that we come to points that we just like, oh boy, that's too uncomfortable. Really don't like what Paul or Peter wrote there. Uh, and so I'm just going to put that on the shelf and, and just leave it there for a few years and ignore it. Or we just put down the Bible and walk away. Humbly submit to God. And maybe right now God is trying to get you to do something that's really uncomfortable. Maybe he's trying to get you to forgive someone. Maybe he's trying to get to talk to you, get you to talk to someone about his son Jesus. Maybe he's trying to get you to repent of some sin to a person in your life who you've hurt. Submit to the Lord. Because he's trying to get you to do these things for his good pleasure. And if we're going to say, all glory be to God, if we're going to say, I'm going to love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we need to obey him when it's hard. And not just obey him when it's easy. And not just obey him when we can get up on a soapbox on social media and declare how much we're obeying him, but to obey him in all parts of our lives, to be obedient, not just when others are looking, but when we're alone as well. To walk with God. It is God who does this. It is the Lord who works in you. As a, it is the Lord who works in us as a church to lead us in the ways of Christ. It is the Lord who works in us individually to accomplish His will. It is divine action in our lives. And we should humbly submit to that. And when we rely on God's divine action in our lives, it provides us, it provides for us in some really unique ways. First way it provides for us is it gives us hope that we're not left to our own devices. My holiness, I play, I play just such a small part of my holiness. It's God who's leading me along. And it feels like choice after choice after choice for me, but it's his enabling grace. It's his Holy Spirit that leads me along and carries me along. And they are working in and through me and around me. And the same with you. That I have hope that I'm not the only one working on Chuck, that God is doing so much more than me. He is carrying so much more than I am. You know, our hope is only as good as what we place it in. And if we place our hope in an inferior object, then we're not, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fail. If you place your hope in the chances of the Washington Generals beating the Harlan Globetrotters, it's never going to come to fruition. But when you base in your, your hope in the God of the universe, and we realize how much God has already done for us, the promises he's kept through history, the promises he's still keeping. It gives us so much hope knowing that God is not done. That he who began a good work in you, remember Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ. That he's not done with you yet and he is still working in you. He is active in you. Having a hope that God will accomplish his purposes is the same as having hope that gravity will keep me from floating into outer space. Next thing that relying on God gives us in his divine action is peace. There's a peace that comes from relying on God's divine action that is closely, it's closely tied to our hope, but it just relaxes our heart. And while we can have hope through today and tomorrow, 
that God is ultimately at work, we can have peace because he never fails. And we don't, in our hope, have to be anxious, but we can be relaxed. Think of like any appliance or car commercial where they talk about how well their device runs, the warranties that come with it. It's all for your peace of mind. Jesus died on the cross, rose again, put his Holy Spirit in you for your peace of heart. That you will have peace that transcends understanding. And you'll have the peace knowing that it's all taken care of, knowing that the God of the universe is at work in you, who gives peace to your heart. The one that said, uh, let there be light and spoke light into existence is working on you. And what Romans 8, 29 through 30 tells us is for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also uh, called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God has the hard work. He has to save you. He has to sustain you. He has to grow and change you and glorify you. And all we have to do is let him do that work. The last thing it gives us is direction. God's for the good pleasure of God. He works in us for his good pleasure. And so as we're trying to figure out what to do, we seek the pleasure of God. We seek the pleasure of God. It's the gospel, telling the gospel of others that, that none may perish. It's, it's the fruit of the Spirit, this pleasure of God, that we would have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we would model these things and show these things, and the Holy Spirit would be evident. This is the pleasure of God. It's the pleasure of God that we be delighted in Him that we fill ourselves with Him and His goodness, that we sing His praises, that we pray to Him, that our hearts be glad because of the work He has done. It's God's good pleasure that the nations know there's a Savior and His name is Jesus Christ. It's God's good pleasure that justice be done and that His people speak up for justice. Whether that's speaking against the injustice of racial inequality or racial violence, wherever it may come from, whether it's speaking of the injustice that there are a lot of kids in our world who don't have homes and are orphans, whether it's speaking up of the injustice that clean water can't be found everywhere or that people are starving and other people are sitting on more money than they even know what to do with, there is injustice. And God's good pleasure is found in justice. He has shown you, oh man, what is good. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. This is his good pleasure. God's transforming and enabling grace conforms us to his will. So we can stop seeking the things of ourselves, which will rust and destroy and be rust and be eaten by moths and be destroyed and be stolen. And we can pursue the things of him, which are eternal. So I've, I've worked with horses uh, when I was in college at a camp, and we had Mustangs out there, wild Mustangs that were caught and trained and, and campers rode. I've, I've talked about these Mustangs before, but you probably don't remember it. When a Mustang is brought into captivity, it is still a wild horse. It's just a wild horse in a barn. 
And so it's a wild horse that has a roof. It's a wild horse if it's in a stable that has walls. It's a wild horse that's being fed high-quality grain. It's no longer a wild horse running from mountain lions, fighting to have land to eat on, getting potentially struck by lightning every time there's a thunderstorm because they're big and they live in places that are flat. It is a wild horse that has a roof over its head, but it doesn't know these things yet. And the process of training a Mustang is the process of teaching it that it doesn't have to be afraid of people, that it's okay if something touches its back, training it to be handled by a veterinarian, training it to eventually be ridden, training it to be calm, and you're training a Mustang essentially to ignore almost all the impulses it feels in the wild because it's a new horse. It's not in the wild anymore. But it's a hard process because those wild habits are just bred into it and bred into it and bred into it. And any horse that didn't have good enough habits in those areas died and didn't get to breed. Sin is bred into us and bred into us and bred into us and bred into us. Seeking out the pleasures of my flesh has just been pounded into me from the moment Adam and Eve ate that fruit and started having kids. We get that all the way back from Adam. When we believe in Christ, we become a new creation, a new creature. And we're just like that wild horse that's put in a stable. We are in a place of protection. We now belong to someone. We have a new master. Our master is not the wild, but our master is someone who's going to care for us and train us to be useful. God has brought you into his home. He has brought you into his family to make you a child of God and a co-heir with Christ. And it's an amazing thing. And as we work that out, as we figure out what that means, we're going to keep messing up and we're going to keep doing things that bring God pleasure. And so let us, with holy reverence, never stop marveling at the cross. And let us with reverence, with this fear and trembling, continue to praise God, submit to Him, and glorify Him with our words, thoughts, and actions. Because He has made us new. He has given us a salvation, and He is not going to finish His work in us until the day of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise You, we glorify You, we honor Your name. Thank You for saving us. Thank you for making us your child. Lord, if if there's anyone watching or listening to this now who does not know you, I pray that they would, by your Spirit, hear what's available. That they would humble themselves before you. That they would ask for you to forgive their sins. And they would be able to experience what it is to be made new. That we have a Savior. That we can have hope and peace and direction that are founded in you.
Thank you for working in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.